If you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans chapter 2. We are making our way through Romans here. We are in the beginning of chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to put up our four verses up on the screen here as we read through them in God's Word together. Romans 2, 1 through 4 says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do, not them, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And we can stop right there. I'd actually like to pray for this passage one more time before we jump into it this morning. And then if anybody wants to just sneak out, you can while we talk about judgment of each other. Um, Father, we are so grateful for your word and that it is true. And we are grateful that your word speaks not only of the reality around us and those outside the walls of the church, but it speaks of us and to our own hearts, Father. There is no better way to know ourselves than to know your word, Lord. So would you help us do that in this time, God? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I was reading this week about some very creative judges who decided to use their ability to sentence people to uh, try to uh, get people to better understand the implications of some of their actions. Uh, there was a judge in Colorado who, when he would have people come through his courtroom who were guilty of like noise code violations, I think these are people who played music too loud, or um, who drove with their music too loud, um, he, would, uh, he would sentence them to listening to loud music. Uh, basically, he would force them to listen to blaring music for an hour in a room, along with all the other stuff that they would have to do. They probably had to pay a fine. Uh, the music is designed to be as grating as possible to the offenders. Um, uh, the, uh, so if their music of choice... Now, it says here that their music of choice tended to be hip-hop and rock and roll. So, okay, those are the people driving around with their music too loud, right? They're not listening to show tunes, okay? And so in order to make it as, as obnoxious as possible, they had to listen to Barry Manilow, Dolly Parton, classical music. They had to listen to nursery rhymes. They had to listen to TV theme songs and even show tunes. Um, there was another judge that um, had a, uh, uh, there was a guy who was a construction worker, and, um, well, we're really going with stereotypes here. He's a construction worker, and he, uh, he was sort of charged with disorderly conduct for um, throwing beer bottles at a woman in a car as he drove by because he thought she was attractive. You know, clearly, you know, uh, someone had given him a very unique uh, training on how to, uh, how to win over ladies. Um, he was not, uh, that was not working, and in fact, he had to go to jail. Well, apart from going to jail, he um, was forced to, by this judge, walk through downtown uh, their city in drag. Um, in fact, when any, whenever guys were in trouble for anything at all related to objectifying women, this judge would force them. He would give them the option. That's how you do this, by the way. You give them an option. You give them a pretty scary sentence at a huge fine, or you say, or you can just walk down downtown and drag and see what people say to you and see how you feel about it, right? Um, I was reading about a um, uh, judge who made a slumlord live in his own building, he owned 40 rundown properties in Cleveland, and he was sentenced to six months house arrest in one of the units because it was found that he was forcing people to live in unsafe conditions, and he wasn't abiding by building code laws. Um, I was uh, reading about um, a number of these cases in which judges use their uh, ability as a judge to get very creative, and I think that we read about this stuff, and we find it so entertaining 
And the reason that we find it entertaining is because, apart from the fact that it's just funny to think of people having to have to deal with that, we think of uh, how much we actually do care that when people do things that, that we consider to be wrong, that they somehow could be made to understand exactly what it feels like to be the victim of that person right? Uh, most of the time, punishments, most of the time, fines, jail time, things like that, they still don't really uh, teach offenders, give them a way of being put in the position of the people that they have wronged. And there's something about these kinds of situations that really strike a chord with us, apart from the fact that they're endlessly entertaining, just because we go, yes, that person finally understands and sees exactly what it's like to have to deal with the thing that they've done. There's a reason for this, and that's because we, all of us, have this very strong sense built within us for something called justice. We care about justice. We care about right versus wrong. And that's basically what we've been talking about in Romans all the way up to this point. In chapter 1, as we've talked about um, how clear it is that God made everything that's here and that he is behind it, and because of that, he has authority over it, and yet how also it is clear that people have chosen to, instead of following God and worshiping him, have instead like exchanged God for these like just very transitory, temporary, material, worldly images and idols and other things that we put in the place of God, thinking that somehow it gives us power and freedom from God in order to truly be fulfilled and needing to depend on him. We, we talked about even the degree to which this has happened to where the very idea of natural and unnatural have been changed, have been distorted. So we haven't given up on those ideas. We, those ideas are inherently, they're inherently tied to being created, right? Like if there's an order to things and a creator to things, then obviously there's a sense of what's natural and what's unnatural. And what we had talked about last week was the fact that, that what we see in the world around us is how clear it is that we have even taken those very ideas and we've changed them around. We've called natural uh, something natural that is not, something unnatural that actually um, is natural. That we've done all those things and we, we call things, uh, good and we call things bad. And, and when we talk about all of this stuff, we don't just, uh, what we talk about is that we're not just seeing God in his physical creation. It's not just a matter of look at the mountains, see that God created things, but we actually see God and know that he's real in part because of something that he has put inside of each and every one of us. This thing that has been written on all of our hearts that strongly drives us and tells us there is a right and there is a wrong. And that thing is a sense of justice. We, we look around us, we live this life of ours, and it's not just the people inside the walls of the church who feel that way. We see people who do evil and we call it evil. And when we do that... When we see what is good and we call it good and we see what is evil and we call it evil, we do something called judging. We judge things. We judge things when we say that they are right or wrong. They are good or bad. They are beautiful or the opposite of beautiful. I guess that would be ugly. To judge someone, including ourselves, is simply to call a thing uh, what it is. What surprises us is that no one has to teach us to feel this way. In fact, no matter how hard anyone tries, you cannot explain this moral law that exists within our hearts, each and every one of us, by culture. You cannot explain it through anthropology, through sociology, through evolutionary development. You cannot really explain how all the different people on the earth still seem to have these inherent values that are, that are, that are like just there. And in fact, we know that's true because of how passionate and how strongly we will fight for those values against one another. Because we are very comfortable judging things as being good or being bad. And this is what we've seen all the way up through in Romans. It is wrong to harm other people. Why? Because people are valuable. Because they have inherent value and worth. And because of that, it is wrong to harm them. 
It's wrong to consider someone not valuable, even if they are not capable of doing what other people are capable of doing. It is wrong to consider someone not valuable, even if they cannot contribute in the same way to society as maybe some others would be. Why? We don't know. We're not sure. We just know that people matter and that they're valuable and that we'll fight for that. We'll certainly fight for ourselves. We'll definitely fight for the people that we love next to us, that they have those, those built-in rights. It's wrong to take something that doesn't belong to you. It's wrong to lie. You can get fired from a job for lying, for just lying. You can say, you lied. I don't want to work with you anymore. You, you, it's probably easier to get fired for lying than for doing a bad job. It's hard to get fired for that, turns out. But if you do certain things that are considered morally wrong, like all your boss can be like, nope, not going to do it. You've, you, you've broken our code of conduct. You've done something that we consider to be wrong. Why is it wrong to lie? Don't try to have that argument with them on the way out. You're not going to win because they don't have to try to make it. Because we all just kind of know these things. The universe that God has created is governed by physical laws, laws like gravity, laws like thermodynamics, all sorts of physical things. But the universe in which God has created is governed by other laws that are not physical as well. And they are just as unchanging and just as objective, and they are true no matter who you are or where you're from or where you grow up. God has given us this thing called the moral law. C.S. Lewis calls it the law of human nature when he talks about it in mere Christianity. So when justice, this inherent sense of justice, that we have within us, which is proof of the fact that there is a God who created all of this and all of us, causes us to call a bad thing bad and a good thing good. We call that judgment. And it is not wrong to judge. Let me say that again. It is not wrong to call a good thing good and a bad thing bad. Paul says here in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Up until now, Paul has been making a case for some pretty wicked stuff. People who have gone astray, decisions people have made, the darkness of the world around us, the confusion and everything that exists. And he says here in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So if you are committing evil, if you are doing wrong, if you are sinning, then the judgment of God rightly falls upon you. It rightly falls upon anyone who commits those things. And we've spent a while talking about what it means to commit those things. The judgment is right, but it's also unavoidable. In the same way that when an apple falls from a tree, it will hit the ground. In the same way that an object in motion will remain in motion until something causes it to be at rest. When something wrong occurs... Ultimately, God judges that thing. This is not a hard thing for most Christians to get, to agree with, or to understand. I want to go back one verse, though, where Paul says this in the beginning of our chapter this morning. Therefore, you have no excuse. O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, Practice the very same things. Oh, man. I was really hoping he would just go straight to verse 2 here. So when Ellie and I were first married, we decided that we wanted to have a pet. And we wanted a cat. And we were cheap and poor and broke and all that stuff. So uh, fortunately for us, there was a, a, a litter of kittens that had recently been born, from what we could tell, uh, living somewhere near the dumpster outside of our apartment door. And so, just so that you know, when I'm done with this, you're going to not have as much respect for me as you may have had before. Um, we decided, well, this is simple. And one night, at night, because it turns out cats are nocturnal, we did our research, um, and we also didn't want too many of our neighbors seeing what was happening, uh, we began to leave a trail of delicious cat food morsels from the dumpster all the way across the driveway into the open front door of our apartments, into a little cat carrier. And yes, I was hiding behind the couch with a string tied to the door so that when this little kitten would walk up 
and eat a little piece of cat food, so delicious, and walk up and eat the next piece. And I was hiding behind the, behind the door, and I think Ellie was hiding behind the couch, and our front door was wide open, and we were just hoping, I guess our neighbors weren't good neighbors, and they wouldn't care about what was, weird things were happening. As the cat would walk, this little kitten would walk, and he'd eat one, and every time, every time he would stop and he'd go, this doesn't seem right. Instincts. I have instincts. They tell me this is not. No. All right. Well, I'm hungry. And he would keep eating. He would work his way all the way into our apartment, all the way into the cat carrier. And then, yes, wham, I shut the door. Trapped. Then, after three days and a lot of cans of tuna, Ellie and I kind of came to the realization that we really weren't going to be able to tame a feral kitten. And we released him back to his family, went and adopted a cat. And that was the rest of that story. <laughs> now, I have to be honest with you guys. As a pastor, I'm supposed to be. Um, you are all the kitten here. Because Paul is really good, it turns out. And he has been setting a trap for us this whole time. Uh, Paul, throughout all of chapter 1, has been placing these tasty little morsels in a little path. And man, we've been eating it up. And he's like... You're like, yes, please, thank you, yes, please, thank you. And we find ourselves walking all the way in, and we are now at the point where we get to the beginning of chapter 2, and the door has slammed shut, and we're inside the trap that Paul laid for us. We, we're with him. We're tracking with him all the way. And he slams the door shut and says, ha, now I've got you. Therefore... Because you agree with all these things that we've talked about up till now. And boy, do we agree with all these things we've talked about up till now. Therefore, you have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. God is the creator, and it is obvious. Of course it is. How could people not see that? How could people not realize that? That's nuts. People have exchanged the truth of God for other ridiculously unequal things to God. Yes, they absolutely have, and it's a shame to see it and to have to live around people who constantly do it and live in the blindness that comes as a result. We have even changed what it means for natural and unnatural. Yes, absolutely. Like, and it is so crazy and dark in the world in which we live because of that. This is exactly why things seem to feel so crazy right now. The door has shut, and Paul now springs the trap on us. Because what Paul is saying to the church in Rome is he is saying this. In case it isn't clear enough, I'll interpret it for you. You are guilty of the very same things that are so easy to see in others. You guys are pretty good at judging. You guys are pretty good at calling right, right, and wrong, wrong. You're pretty good at that. So it seems that you're not quite as good as seeing how these things are true for you. Paul is talking to a group of people in a church that he has tremendous love, admiration, and respect for. And he is saying even to that group of people, your traditions, your habits, your good works, your place of being a follower of God and one of God's people and cause you to do the exact same things as their idols that you roll your eyes at. The way that you lust and desire in your heart is as evil as those who acted out in ways that you find absolutely deplorable. If you don't agree with them and you're like, well, I'm not sure about that. Well, Jesus talked a lot about that in the Gospels, it turns out. Jesus says everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the law tells you that to not commit adultery because the, the, the sentence would be grave. And he says, but if you've even looked lustfully at someone else, you have committed that. That to murder is subject, the murder is subject to death. If you hate your brother, you are guilty of that thing too. Just because we don't do the things that other people do doesn't mean that we're not still guilty, he says, of the same things. To be prideful and arrogant were sinful things. 
And you go, but the church in Rome is filled with people who actually were following Jesus, right? Jesus went around talking to people who weren't following him yet, and he was telling them that they were doing wrong things. These are the people that are following him now. Jesus is their guy. They're on the right track. They're in the right group. They're doing the right things. But Paul's words are this. Even though you were following Jesus, even though you were part of this new church, you are still guilty of these things. Paul is not saying here that we're not supposed to judge. He's not talking about the act of judging. He's not talking about the act of calling right, right, and wrong, wrong. Paul is saying that there is a blindness that comes. He says, you guys are supposed to be the group of people who recognize that they are guilty of the things other people are guilty of as well. If there's something that sets you apart, you Christians, you people in the church, it is not that you're the best ones at pointing out what's wrong. It's that you're the group that is going to be first to stand up and say, I myself am guilty of these things. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, says Paul, to the church in Rome, a church that he has great love and affection for. We know that this is how Paul viewed even himself when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, giving him advice on how to be a good pastor. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. Paul looks at himself and says, I am like the worst of sinners because I know myself better than I know all these other people. And what I see is not good when I see the things that exist in my heart. And so Paul's advice to a young leader who we should assume is probably a pretty good leader since he's been called to that at such an early point in his life, his advice to Timothy is, this is a pretty good saying. You're going to want to get used to saying this one. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And Paul's words to the church in Rome, a church that he says to them in the beginning like we looked at, I thank God for you. I speak of you in my prayers. I proclaim your faith to all who will listen because of how great of a church you are. His message to that group is the same. You are the foremost of sinners, as I am the foremost of sinners. We are guilty of these very same things. It should be obvious to a person of faith that we are prone to the same things, given to the same temptations, and that we find ourselves falling into the same sin that we see others doing and we point out in other people. But time and time again, that doesn't seem to be the pattern. The pattern seems to be that we are more comfortable calling it out in other people and less willing to see it in ourselves. And the question is, why is that? Why did Paul have to set a trap? Why did he have to lure us in? to get us to see that he was trying to talk to us. Why? I think there's two reasons that he gives for it. He gives two explanations for why we would not be able to want to see the sin uh, that, that is evident inside of our own lives, the things that we're subject to judgment for. The first is this. He says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So the first is hypocrisy. The first reason, and this is a word that people throw around sometimes when talking about religious groups. The first one is this. Do you think that there's something about you that makes you different to where you will escape the judgment of God, he says? Is there something about you that makes you somebody who can do the same things, but they're not quite as bad? It's essentially what he's saying. You go, man, I couldn't imagine anybody seeing themselves that way. There's a question that people in the church will often ask in one form or another. You've probably found yourself asking it. I know that I have found myself asking it. I've heard this from many godly people. And the question looks something like this. Wait, hang on. There it is. I'm going to have to go way back here. Can someone do blank and still be a Christian? You might have asked this question. You might have heard other people ask this question. It certainly came up when I was in seminary. Can somebody do the following thing and still be a Christian? I've heard people ask, can someone be the following thing and still be a Christian? I think this is one of those questions that Jesus would have really liked to get from somebody. Because like many of the questions he got, it's based on a presumption. And things that are based on presumptions, Jesus had a field day with. 
and people usually walked away a little bit confused. There's something about this question that reveals something about those who are asking, can a person be living with someone they're not married to and still be a Christian? Someone might ask. Can a person be given to addiction to drugs, alcohol, pornography, sex, and still be a Christian? Can a pro-life person be pro-choice, sorry, person be a Christian? Can a gay person be a Christian? Can a transgendered person be a Christian? Can a person who believes in evolution be a Christian? Can someone do something on this list? Can someone be something on this list and still be a Christian? I'm pretty sure if he walked up to Jesus and asked him this question, he would respond this way. Can one who struggles with your sin still be a Christian? And then you'd walk away all confused and sad. This question is based on the presumption that there are certain behaviors or lifestyles or sins. Uh, really, it's talking about sins that are bad enough to make incompatible with Christianity. This person is incapable of being saved by the grace of Jesus because of this thing. So it assumes then that there are sins and things that are more acceptable and more compatible with being saved by Jesus and the grace that he brings. Does it not? If you read the Bible at all, you learn pretty quickly that there were Pharisees and religious leaders, and those tended to be the bad guys in Jesus' day. They are the arrogant, self-righteous ones, while the followers of Jesus are good. Well, the church has now been around long enough at this point that Paul's writing that the follower of Jesus have gotten a little comfortable. They've seen some amazing things happen through the Holy Spirit and through the church that they've been a part of. And Paul clearly has a high view of them and a deep love for them. But they've also probably gotten to the point to where it is easy to see themselves more as the example of godly living to the world. We are God's chosen people. And less as an example of the desperate grace of Jesus for people who are just as capable of falling into sin as the next guy prone to the same temptations, often given over to the same things even. Over time, there will be less repentance, less humility, less we are sinners in need of a savior from a group of religious people, and more we are the example of what God everyone, wants everyone to be. We give the Israelites a pretty hard time. The truth is, we are the Israelites, we give the early church a pretty hard time. The truth is, we are the early church. We give the church from like 50 years ago a hard time. The truth is, truth is, guys, we are the church from 50 years ago. Do you see the pattern here? Paul has tried to trap us because he knows this is something that we will have a hard time admitting. But I'll never forget talking to a friend who was a pastor who uh, left his church to go plant another church, and their family went with another family. Two families went to go plant a church. And a few years into the church plant, it turned out that he was having an affair with the wife of the other family. And the church plant dissolved, obviously, and he, was down from, he stepped down from ministry. His marriage fell apart. And upon being asked a little bit later on how he could possibly like, think that it would work, to plant a church and expect God and the Holy Spirit to bless that thing while being engaged in sin like that. Do you know what his answer was? And it showed a tremendous amount of self-awareness. He said, I believe that the good things that I was doing gave me a little bit, you know, of leeway with God for some of these bad things I was doing. The idea was that it was so hard to be a church planter. It was so difficult, all the sacrifice that was required to do these things that were so important and so significant that God understood that I might be prone to these things that were more understandable. That my sins are more understandable than maybe the sins of others because of who I am, the group I'm a part of, the good things that I've done, the example that I am, the reputation that God certainly wouldn't want to be called into question. I think the first reason why we fight this so much is, is hypocrisy. It is our, our tendency to somehow be, allowed, be led to believe that there's something about who we are that makes our sin not quite as worthy of judgment as others. Okay, now I've got to go back here a bunch. But I think the other is probably the bigger problem for us, and it is this. 
He goes on to say, or, if that first one is in the case, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This term that he uses here, the riches of his kindness, is a term that's used throughout the Bible to describe God's abundantly gracious gift of wealth, of good things to his children, who aren't really deserving of it. Uh, it, basically, it's a term used to describe a God as a father who is filthy, stinking rich and is just giving out of the goodness, out of his kindness, giving this stuff, these things to his children. Some, if you know anything, you know, if you think about like wealthy people who have a lot of money, who have to ask the question of like, what do I do with this with my children? Some wealthy people will give no money away to their children saying, oh, I think it will only hurt them. Some wealthy people, you know, if you're, you know, you obviously don't want to be born to someone like that. Somebody who, some people who are wealthy, they give all their money away and they say like, well, it's up to them and they'll deal with it and it'll be fine. I don't really care much about it. Warren Buffett, who kind of is like a billionaire, but we also like him because he's sort of like, I guess seems like the more down to earth billionaire or whatever. I don't think he actually still drives the same VW bug, but we like to believe that. He said himself very well. He said, I want to leave, uh, he said, I want to leave my children just enough so that they would feel that they could do anything, but not so much that they would feel like doing nothing. That's why we love Warren Buffett. I'm like, yeah, that sums it up, right? So, uh, so when we talk about the riches of his kindness, uh, we talk about our father, God, who is a very, very wealthy father who freely gives it to his children. Ours is not the father who sets up a very complicated trust fund with a bunch of hoops to jump through. You know, sorry, you got to go back to elementary school and finish it a second time, and then you can have the company, then you can inherit all the money. The riches of God's kindness are the ways he blesses us. He shows grace to us. He shows his loves to us. He gives us a gift of a relationship with us, his gentleness with us, even in the very midst of the mess that we make of life. For the sake of what Paul is saying, the type of parent that he describes, the one that we see described in the parable of the prodigal son is very similar. It is a parent who is almost recklessly giving away the things that they have to their children rather than waiting and slowly giving it out based on what they've done to deserve it. Goes on to talk about forbearance and patience. Patience is patience. Translate forbearance, it's patience. This is always so confusing. You translate it, it's patience. Like, why don't you say patience and patience? I guess that wouldn't sound so good. Patience is like regular patience. Forbearance is like, oh, you got to be kidding me. I shouldn't have to deal with this. Okay. Every day of homeschooling, uh, if you homeschooled this past year, year and a half, every day of homeschooling begins with a commitment to just being patient. You know, the regular amount of patience. I'm going to be, I got to be patient, Right. Then the forbearance comes in. Then the line gets crossed, and it's like, okay, this isn't reasonable, what this kid is demanding of me, what this situation is demanding of me. I'm having to show more patience now, beyond what I might even think is totally reasonable, right? That, ladies and gentlemen, is forbearance, okay? And what he's saying here is that our God is one, our Father is one who shows the riches of his kindness. He shows patience with us in reasonable situations, and forbearance with us in completely unreasonable demands that we have on his patience. Here's where it all starts to matter. It is the word that you translate for presume. We think of presume and we think presume means you just accept it, you assume it, you think it's fine for some reason, and I can't tell you why. Uh, the translation of this word is so different from what you see when you look this word up in the Greek. When you look the word up in the Greek, it is kataphreneo. And kataphreneo means to despise something because it doesn't really have any value. It's the idea of coming across something that is just without real value or, or, or purpose, and then just kind of being like shoving it aside. It's shoving it aside. Like, I don't have time for that. I don't want that, right? In fact, one of the ways that this word is used the most is in reference to children in the New Testament. I'll give you an example. In Matthew 18, Jesus says this, See to it that none of you, that you do not despise any of these little ones. That's the same word there, despise. 
as presumed. So Jesus is saying, you know, in the same way that somebody, maybe a disciple, somebody who's kind of feeling proud of themselves, might walk by a child and be like, hey, come on, like, what are you going to do for me? Get out of Jesus' way. He's got bigger things to do. He's got bigger things to deal with. Because you look at them and you think, oh, you know, what are you going to do? How important are you? And there's even this sense of like, so therefore, because you're not important and because you're not as valuable to me, you're probably just kind of in the way. To despise something because you see that it has no value. You see something and you think, man, what a waste of time and energy even thinking about that thing. It's useless. So what Paul is saying here is this. Do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you see the things that God does so graciously for his children and go, I don't like that he does those things. Why on earth would we do that, right? Why on earth would we be prone to look at a father who seems to be recklessly giving away what he has to children who are undeserving of it and not like that? Oh, gee, I wonder. Why would we not like the idea of a father who is so willing to be patient and forbear with those who clearly don't seem to be deserving it anymore? We resent and often despise the father who gives the riches of his kindness because what we think is that what everyone really needs is a stern, disciplined father, one who insists that his children earn their riches, who prove that they deserve them through work and toil. The resentment is is rooted in believing that it is genuinely better for the children, genuinely better for all of us who have to deal with these kids, for them to work harder for what they get, right? Right? In fact, we tend to despise this riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, even not because of other people, but because we don't want that to be true of us. I want to be the child that earned. I want to be the child that did something that was worthy of the inheritance. I want to be the child that doesn't require so much patience and so much forbearance. My pride says we should all have to earn it, or at the very least, pay for our immaturity, our selfishness and mistakes, grow up before the thing actually comes to us. I do not think that we are okay with God being this way towards people. I really don't. I think we have a really hard time with this. We think this is not the best way to deal with all the junk out there. I mean, how is a God of wrath and of justice, a God who invented right and wrong, just going to let people keep getting away with all this stuff? Like, seriously, when are people going to learn? Do you know why we don't like this about God? We don't like this about God because we need people to hit rock bottom, right? Like, is there any, like, anything we are prone to more than when someone does something wrong, when we deal with the, with the bad things that happen and the mistakes of other people, we go, well, you know what? They're just going to have to deal with the consequences, right? Unfortunately, they're probably going to have to lose everything. They're going to have to hit rock bottom. And then eventually, eventually when they hit rock bottom, maybe, maybe they'll see how much they need God. Maybe they'll realize the error of their ways, but I'm not going to lie. I'm going to enjoy watching that process unfold. You can go anywhere and you can find people who have hit rock bottom where the safety net has been taken out and they are not any closer to being on their way. They are not on their way back to a place that is good. We want to live in a world where everyone has to deal with these painful consequences of their actions, painful judgment, lots of punishment, because we'd like to believe that we actually live in a world where we all fix our own stuff, figure our stuff out, and and earn our way back into the good favor of the Father because we're the good child. But that is not the world that we live in. That is not the way that our Father works. Do you despise these things not knowing, not knowing, you would despise them because you don't know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You go, what about justice? What about the God who invented judgment and wrath? What about the God who cares about right and wrong? What about all those things? Okay, we're going to kind of dive into the deep end for just one second and talk about some theology behind why this works and why it goes the way that it does. The judgment and the wrath and the suffering that we all have coming is the consequences of our sin. 
When something bad happens that is against God's order and his plan, when we sin against God or against his creation, there are consequences. And no matter how much we want to believe there aren't, there are. It is the wreckage. It is the penalty that must be paid. When a person is killed, that life is valuable, valuable to God. It is worth something, so who pays for that? When a child is abandoned, and when you betray the trust of someone who placed it in you, who pays for the damage that has been caused? Justice is a scale, and it must be balanced. Wherever there is injustice, there must be retribution. When we experience, when we experience division, there must be reconciliation. When we experience pain, there must be healing. The scales must be balanced. And what our theology tells us is that our God does not give on this. But what our theology also tells us, and we see it here in Romans 2, 4, is this, that our God, our Father, does not use those things to fix or to change us. God does not use the punishments, the consequences to fix and to change you. He says, that's not what I use. That's not the way that I operate. He instead uses something else. He uses kindness. And if we had even a small idea of the goodness of God, of the kindness of God, of the, of the absolute generosity that he gives to his children, then we would desire repentance. We would desire to be back with him. We resist repentance and, <coughs> and correction and reproof. We, we resist turning our way back to God, coming back to him in the midst of our sin. We resist these things so much. We resist even seeing how we are guilty of the very same things we call other people guilty of. We resist these things not because we are evil and weak and angry and mean. It is usually because we have forgotten the good. We have forgotten the good that comes to those who come to God in their brokenness. His kindness leads us to repentance. His wrath doesn't lead us to repentance. His punishment doesn't lead us to repentance. Those are real things. God's wrath exists. Punishment exists. Justice exists. It exists because something must happen when there is sin. But God chooses to give freely to us, drawing us back to him. And that is very, very important. That's what Paul's saying here. And that's the reason why we are most likely to have a hard time being honest with ourselves about our struggles with the very same thing that we will judge others for. Why are we less likely to judge ourselves as harshly as we judge others? Why do we have to be caught in a trap by Paul in order to actually see where we're really at in our own hearts? It's because we don't recognize the kindness of God and don't see that if we could only be honest about those things, if we could only be aware of those things and bring those things to God, that what is awaiting us when we come back to him is so much greater than the sin. Repentance is not just turning away from something bad. It is turning back to God. And the way that he brings us back to him is with his kindness, is with his patience and his forbearance, which is meant to lead us to repentance. When you get to this point in Romans, it's very easy to be like, I don't know, though, it seems like God's pretty, you know, big on, on this justice and this, this wrath. It seems like there's a lot coming, and it's hard to imagine the God that you've talked about, that we've talked about up till now, if I were to come in physical contact with him, let's just say hypothetically, ignore all this stuff behind me, that he came physically and you got to spend time with him our thought would generally be that that would be a pretty angry person. They'd be like, oh, here we go. Okay. Based on Romans 1, I'm thinking I'm not sure if I want to sit down and have a conversation with God. If we're all as guilty as it says, if the wrath is as deserved as it is. This is where Jesus coming in the flesh and showing us God matters so much. Not just because of what Jesus accomplishes, that matters. 
It matters what Jesus accomplishes for our salvation, for saving us from our sins through his righteousness and his sacrifice. But what Jesus also showed was that when God sees his children who are in sin, who are mired in it, who are confused, who don't even have a clear understanding in the dark world they live in of what is right or what is wrong, that he would go to them with compassion and kindness. What did Jesus do? He showed such an incredible amount of patience and forbearance for people who were broken, who were sinful, who were humble, who were beat down. He showed such a tremendous amount of kindness to these people. And the people that he spent all this time fighting with were the ones that were like, don't do that. They don't deserve it. We know that we're not supposed to be the guy who says, God, thank you for not making me the sinner when he prays. The tax collector, who, the, the, guy, the Pharisee who comes to the temple and says, God, thanks for making me, not making me like this humble, groveling, sad tax collector who's here, big mess on the floor, just asking for forgiveness. But we also really don't want to be that tax collector. We're like, there's got to be something in the middle there, right? What Paul is saying is he's saying, you are guilty of the same things. Jesus was living, breathing, walking proof that in the midst of our inability to measure up to God's standards, and even in our inability to see how we are guilty, that God still comes to us. God is still love and compassion embodied. The times that I have seen this the most clearly has not been study of theology. Although study of theology has given me the words and the ability to be able to understand what it is that I'm experiencing and seeing and even explain it, it's so often the things that I experience with my own children as a father. Over the last year, I've been attempting to build kitchen cabinets and uh, apparently people have told me recently that there are people who do that for you, which chalk that up to just we don't have yellow pages anymore, so I don't know how to find stuff. But um, I have spent a year, the better part of a year in my spare time when I'm relaxing, trying to in every step build and then finish and then paint cabinets that actually look somewhat close to what you would have a professional do. My kids know well, this is where dad's going to be if you don't know where he is in the house. He's going to be out there, he's going to be building, he's going to be sanding, he's going to be painting, he's going to be sanding, he's going to be painting, he's going to be fixing, he's going to be rebuilding, he's going to be squaring up, he's going to be trying to get all this stuff figured out. And I finally got to the point where all was done and everything is done, that the cabinets are in and the doors are on and it actually looks kind of finished. And man, oh man, am I done. I am done. I'm like, I'm not picking up anything to do that, anything like that again. I'll do anything else but that again. I'm sick of it. I'm over it. I'm done with it. Now, one of the things that happens is uh, when, you, when you paint these things, it turns out you have to let paint dry for a really long time. Uh, now, wiser, more patient people are good at this. I am not that person. And so while instead of waiting for 30 days, I wait, I wait 15 days. Like 15 days is pretty good, right? I'm going to put all the doors up. And so I put the doors up, and it looks great, and we're happy, and we love it. And then yesterday, I walk by a cabinet door, and I see, I'm pretty sure, a name scratched in the door. And I just can't even describe to you the fireworks that are going off in my brain as my head is exploding from the inside. Like... I don't want to do this again, and I have to do this again. So I call over the child, who I think probably did it. Uh, what was written kind of gave it away. <laughs> and, I said, and, I, and I said, did you do this? Do you understand? Do you understand how big, how, how hard, did you, did you, why did you, like, I have to, dad, I have to do this. I have to pay, is, do you remember how, do you know how much I love these? You know how much I love these? You know I love them. You know how much time I've spent on them. You know, I didn't say, you know how much I love these. But I said, you, do you understand? And I was trying. I was very, trying very hard. Just like, you have to understand. Like, like when, you, when we do these things, like, like it, it damages things. Like, people have to fix them. Like, it's not just, you know, we, know, we don't do what, it's just all these different things. And she, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But, like, do you understand? Like, this is just, you can't just, how could you do it? Just go to your room. Just go to your room. She went to her room. And I, I, I went to my daughter's room, and I sit on the bed, and I'm trying to think of, like, what in the world? What do I say? What do I do? How do I make this? And all I could think to do 
I knew I was going to get emotional when I said this, but it's, it's don't, don't, you know, just ignore all that. Ignore all that. I'm a robot, okay? So I, I, I went in, and I just, the first thing I thought I had to say to her was I had to say, you know, I love you so much, and I don't want you to feel bad about yourself because you're wonderful, and you do so many good things. And as soon as I did that, my daughter came, came to me, like leapt across the bed at me, and hugged me and wouldn't let me go for a long time. And in that moment, I understood what Paul is talking about here. He says, it is God's kindness and it is his love that leads us to repentance. It is not God beating us over the head with our sin. It is not God saying, go away and show me that you can do better. But it is God saying, In the midst of this, I love you and this doesn't define you. Now come to me. And there is no greater feeling than experiencing something like that and getting to see just a glimpse of what this theology is spelling out for us and telling us. The truth of the matter is, because of what Jesus has done, because of who Jesus is, that even though we are guilty of the same things that we so easily see in other people who seem to be messing this world up for all of us, that God comes to us in his kindness. And instead of resenting his kindness and wanting to live in a world where the rules work differently, we can relish it. We can worship God and thank him for it. We can take communion and appreciate what Jesus has done to give us the ability for our Father to sit before us and say, I love you. You're valuable. You matter to me. And that that kindness and that patience would lead us to come back to him more than any amount of guilt, any amount of shame, any amount of self-proving. Let's pray. Father, when I'm honest, I have to confess that this passage caught me by surprise. It caught me by surprise because it made me realize how incomplete my view of you was. How much I saw you as a God, not who, who gave so generously and used kindness to bring us back, but I saw you as a God who expects everybody to hit rock bottom, who expects us to suffer the consequences of things, hoping that that would bring us back to our senses and bring us back to you. Using the guilt and the shame and all the pain and the suffering to somehow make us into better people and teach us lessons. God, there is nothing more freeing and more joy-giving and more joyful than knowing that you are a God who works this way for your children. Would you help us be a people who are givers of that message of hope to the world? but that we could do that because we have experienced it ourselves, God. There are people here today who are afraid and don't want to approach you because they don't see you as that God. And Lord, would you help them? Would you help us to get past those wrong views of you and see you the way that Jesus showed you to be when he lived it out in the flesh, God? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.